Hello everyone and thank you for joining me on this fine Thursday evening. It's January 26, 2017 and you are listening to episode 37 of the Mark Ice Show. So I've got a lot to talk about. Donald Trump has continued to come out and get a lot done. You know, I can't say that I agree with 100% of what he's doing or disagree with 100% of what he's doing, but he is doing things. He's taking action and uh, doing a lot of the things that he promised that I didn't really think he would actually do when he got into this position. But like it or not, he is taking action, so there is plenty to talk about. And probably the number one thing that people are talking about is him already taking action on his wall. So everybody knows this is a huge part of his campaign, something that he started in his initial Um, I believe he talked about this in his initial speech declaring his candidacy for president. And he said that illegal immigrants are hurting this country and taking people's jobs. And what he wanted to do was to build a wall to keep people out. And that became a symbol of his campaign. And some people ate it up. Some people really do believe that illegal immigration is severely hurting this country and bankrupting this country some people are on that far end of the spectrum some people are on the other end of the spectrum and nothing scares them more than this wall so it's something that we have to talk about because it elicits such strong reactions from virtually anybody i i don't know too many people that are completely indifferent to this issue so trump came out And he signed an executive order yesterday on the 25th of January. And here's some of what that executive order said. There was a lot about immigration itself, but as for the wall, it said, it is the policy of the executive branch to, quote, secure the southern border of the United States through the immediate construction of a physical wall on the southern border, monitored and supported by adequate personnel so as to prevent illegal immigration, drug and human trafficking, and acts of terrorism. And the executive order actually goes on to define what a wall is in the sense or in the, you know, in the sense of this executive order. And it says, wall shall mean a contiguous physical wall or other similarly secure, contiguous and impassable physical barrier. So it defines wall. Um, There are multiple mentions of the word wall in this executive order. So understandably, people are concerned about this because it was something that people thought it was a cartoonish part of Trump's campaign that it wasn't actually going to happen. I think people on, you know, whether you're a progressive or whether you are a libertarian or whether you lean one of those two ways, I think they were both concerned about it for different and the same reasons. Progressives were very concerned about it because they love immigration. One of their pet issues has been to basically take illegal immigrants under their wing and hopefully uh, garner more support for the progressive cause. And a lot of a lot of illegal immigrants have done that. Um, so I think progressives think about it more from that perspective. than libertarians, I think both, A, want this to be a country where people can travel fairly freely to and from. Uh, I have discussed this before, how in my ideal world, we would have open borders but we wouldn't have any sort of welfare programs for people to be able to come in and take advantage of. But unfortunately, we don't we don't live in that world. So I think it is inevitable that they're go- that they're going to have to be some limits on who can come into a given country and who can live in that given country. So I do think some sort of of rules for the border, some sort of rules for immigration, are necessary. 
but just the idea of physically constructing a wall, first of all, strikes me as being a huge waste of money. And I think that's probably what most libertarian-leaning people think of first when they think of this wall, how expensive it's going to be. And I guess if it's $20 billion, that's kind of a drop in the bucket of what our federal government spends in an entire year. But that is a whole lot of money. $20 billion is a big deal, and it's not something that we should just poo-poo and let happen. Uh, So I think, first, that's my visceral reaction to it. But beyond that, I do think that this is taking it too far. And in addition to the probably $20 billion, that's kind of the number that's being thrown around as, as would be the cost for this wall, but I'm sure it would end up being more than that. What government project comes in right at budget? So you'd probably be talking about $30, $40 billion if $20 billion is the starting estimate. I'm sure it would end up costing much more than that. But then you also have in this executive order, uh, the executive branch is ordering the hiring of 5,000 more customs agents, primarily to patrol the southern border, patrol the Mexican border. So we'd be throwing even more money away or spending even more money. I guess it depends on the person who's listening, whether or not they think that is a wise use of taxpayer dollars or not. But 5,000 additional border agents in addition to beginning construction on the wall. And what everybody thought is that, well, Congress will never provide the funding for this wall to actually happen. Congress is not going to go through with it. But surprisingly... Both Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan seem right on board with making this happen. And I think both of these guys, if you watch the video that I'm about to play here, I'm about to play the audio, but if you watch this actual video, they both look very uncomfortable. They both look like this is, like they know this isn't what they should be doing. But they come out and Paul Ryan says we have 12 to $15 billion or we're going to try to get 12 to $15 billion to go toward this wall as soon as possible, essentially. I'll play the clip right here before I discuss it anymore. I don't have any advice to, uh, to give to the president about that issue. We are moving ahead. As the speaker pointed out to our group yesterday, with um, what? The border supplemental. Yeah, of a roughly... Uh, 12 to 15. Yeah, 12 to $15 billion. So we intend to address the, the wall issue ourselves, and uh, the, the president can deal with his relations with other countries on that issue and and other issues. So obviously that's Mitch McConnell's voice that you hear, but that's Paul Ryan talking in the background. That's it's both of them up on stage and McConnell turns to Paul Ryan and Ryan gives him that 12 to 15 billion dollar number that they're going to try to secure through Congress to go toward this wall. So it looks like Congress is acquiescing. Now, we don't really know what the fights will be like in Congress. And I I haven't really gotten a good indication of how much support there is across the board for this, if they will be able to get it through. So I'm not saying that this is inevitable by any means, but when you have both the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader coming out and saying, this is what we'd like to do, there's a pretty good chance that that's going to get done. So that'll be an interesting situation to monitor, and it seems like the White House and Congress are somewhat in sync on this. But where, they're, where they aren't in sync is you have Sean Spicer coming out and saying, I also have a clip to play here, but saying that Mexico would pay for the wall by imposing a 20%, you know, 20% tariff, essentially, on Mexican imports 
into the United States. He, he calls it a tax. He doesn't say the word tariff, but by imposing a 20% tax on Mexican goods coming into the U.S., he throws out a, a $50 billion figure and that the U.S. would be able to generate $10 billion a year just from that, and that, that should be able to fund a majority of, of what they would like to do, of what Trump would like to do. Now, they come out came out later and said that this wasn't policy, this isn't the plan, but that it's something that's been thrown around. So I don't know if this is doing damage control based on the reaction to what Spicer said, or if Spicer just kind of started speaking, maybe something he heard somebody say and he thought that this is the plan but it may have just been in the planning stage at this point but here's what Spicer said and I apologize for the audio on this sounds like he's speaking in a room with music blaring in the back but I could not find good audio of this quote I think when you look at the the plan that's that's taking shape now using comprehensive tax reform uh, as a means to tax uh, imports from countries that we have a trade deficit from like Mexico we have if you tax that 50 percent 50 billion dollars at 20% 20% of imports, which is, by the way, a practice that 160 other countries do. Right now, our, our country's policy is to tax exports and let imports flow freely in, which is ridiculous. Uh, but by doing it that way, we can do $10 billion a year and easily pay for the wall just through that mechanism alone. There are a few things I want to talk about specifically with what Spicer said there, but basically the idea of using a tariff as a way to even out trade imbalances to even out a trade deficit and turn a trade deficit into a trade surplus. Why don't we make U.S. goods more competitive around the rest of the world rather than trying to use this this trade warfare and trying trying to make the goods from other countries artificially more expensive than they are? Let's figure out our problems here at home. Let's figure out how can U.S. products be competitive around the rest of the world. This is the same people who want to advocate for a weaker currency. And Trump was one of these people advocating, oftentimes in his currency, for a weaker dollar because it would make U.S. products cheaper around the West, uh, around the rest of the world, ignoring the fact that making your currency weaker depletes the savings of, of uh, your citizens and it makes it harder for your citizens to buy goods abroad. And especially in a country where we rely so much on goods from abroad, Making your currency weaker is not the way to make yourself competitive around the world. Maybe it temporarily boosts your your manufacturing capacity. Maybe it temporarily boosts certain parts of your industry, but it also it also hurts a lot of your industry as well. It hurts people who import a majority of of the inputs into their product. It it hurts people that rely on discount stores, whether it's Walmart or Dollar Tree. Uh, really anybody at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum is is hurt by these types of policies that make their dollar less valuable around the re- around the rest of the world that make their their dollar not go as far when buying products from all over the world so that's another thing you know that's trump hasn't really been talking about a weaker dollar what we're talking about right now is this border tax but it's the same kind of idea that you need to make exports artificially less expensive than imports basically by making imports artificially more expensive that's what they would like to do and that's what spicer is saying in this quote when he talks about the trade deficit that they would like to use this tax yes a to to raise revenue to build this wall he's saying that's the first benefit but then the second benefit is it evens out 
this trade deficit or it will make the trade deficit smaller than it currently is. Now, the trade deficit is an issue to an extent, and I would love to see trade surpluses once again, but the way to achieve that is not through tariffs and through artificially weakening your currency. That is a short-term solution and not even really a solution at that to a long-term problem. And on this show, I've advocated for some things that really could fix this problem over the long term. And I think one of those things is reducing, severely reducing or eliminating the corporate income tax. That would make this a, a much more habitable place for business. Uh, cutting a lot of the regulations around hiring and firing workers, I think that's a huge drain on U.S. manufacturing capacity because it's much harder to take a risk here than it is to take risks elsewhere. And in general, there are a lot of things we can do to make this a, a more hospitable climate for business. Uh, I think that's what we need to be focusing on. And Trump has given some lip service to those things, talking about cutting regulations, making large cuts at the executive agencies. Uh, so he's, he's talked about that to an extent, but this wall and this border tax are what are dominating the news right now. And these aren't going to fix our problems. Is illegal immigration a problem? Probably. I do think, as I said earlier in the show, I do think that when you have a generous welfare state like the United States has, that you almost have to, as an extension of that general well or that generous welfare state, you have to have some rules about who can come and who can take advantage of that welfare state because the right to move freely is important to me. And that is one of the great things about the United States. We can say a lot of you know a lot of things that have gone wrong since the United States was created. But one great thing that it did, was open up large expanses of area where people could move freely, not have to travel through customs, you know, not have to not have to pay to import their goods into another state. That is one thing that has been great about the United States. Uh, so I would love for that to be the case when talking about going from country to country, going from Mexico to the United States, or going from Canada to the United States. But when you have some countries with these generous welfare states and others without it, you are inevitably going to have people that flock just to take advantage of that generous welfare state. And that does happen in the United States. Now, I'm certainly not saying that that all illegal immigrants are coming here to take advantage of the welfare state. There are lots of people that are coming here simply because they can make more money and they want to come here and they want to work hard and they want to send money back to their family or they want to travel back to their home country and be able to have a little more than they did when they started. There are a lot of people doing that, but there also are far higher rates of usage of welfare programs than among native groups. So there's a there's a Center for Immigration Studies study that came out in 2015 and it analyzed native versus immigrant households. And this is all immigrants, so it's not illegal immigrants versus legal immigrants versus natives. This is just natives versus immigrants. So it's not as granular as I would like it to be. But the average household headed by an immigrant costs taxpayers $6,234 in federal welfare benefits, which is 41% higher than the $4,431 received by the average native household. So almost one and a half times greater 
does the immigrant household cost than the native household cost. The average immigrant household consumes 33% more cash welfare, 57% more food assistance, and 44% more Medicaid dollars than the average native household. Housing costs are about the same for both groups. And then immigrants from Central America and Mexico cost $8,251 per household, which is 86% higher than the cost of native households. So almost two, two times higher are... Uh, households headed by immigrants from those two regions. Here's a legal immigrant. A legal immigrant household costs an average of $5,692, um, which is still more than the $4,431 received by the average native household. So not as high as the legal immigrant households, but still higher. And especially considering that to, to be an illegal immigrant, you're you're being paid under the table in all likelihood, probably paying nothing in, in taxes, maybe paying property taxes, but nothing in, in federal taxes or in Social Security taxes and payroll taxes or Medicare taxes, anything like that. Uh, so an important thing to me, and among the most important things to me, is economic freedom and redistribution, taking from some people and giving to others will always irk me. And I think if you're going to come together in a country, and if you're especially if you're going to tax us at the rates that we are taxed, there should be some control over the borders. I mean, could you imagine if our borders were open today and we kept all the same rules in place and people were allowed to just flood into the country? You'd have people coming from everywhere. Yes, a, a decent percentage of them would want to come and just work. But a large percentage of them would come in and would be taking far more than the average native household does. And I have a big issue with that. If these programs are going to be in place, I don't want them to continue to rob me more and more to pay for people that were not a part of the agreement in the first place. Now, if we can if we can dismantle those programs, if we can take away those programs that are creating an incentive for certain people to come to the United States, then I am all for opening up the borders. I am all for making it far easier to come to the United States, but that's not the world that we live in. And I don't see these welfare programs even really being on the table. So I will post that, uh, that episode that I did on immigration, where I think I, I tried to spell out what I think about this. And it's a very difficult issue for people that are libertarians or that are libertarian leaning because you want open borders. That's what you would like. In an ideal world, if you could construct your ideal world, there would be open borders. First of all, all property would be owned privately in a libertarian paradise. If I'm, if I'm going to talk about you know, what I think most people that lean that way would have as their ideal. All property would be privately owned. You wouldn't even need borders really at that point. And if we're talking about a stateless society, if we're going to that, that point, then there would not be borders. Every piece of land would be privately owned, and we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. But in the reality where we are, if I'm, if I'm comparing take more of my economic freedom away or take away the ability for people from other countries to be able to come to the United States or fewer people from other countries can come to the United States, I'm going to pick the latter. Because I think we are already taxed so much. The, con the country is already broke. 
and we need to start cleaning up our own messes first. And like I said, if we can get the if we can get these expansive welfare programs on the table and cut those or eliminate those, then I will completely change my tune. But in the world we live in right now, I do think there needs to be restrictions on immigration. I think it's necessary. Now to go back to my original point, I don't think that this wall is the best way to go about it. I don't think it's a good use of money. I think it's a waste and I don't like it. I'm completely against it. But that does not mean that I really sympathize all that much with illegal immigrants. And I know that many of these illegal immigrants are coming from other places and they're, they're, they're trying to make better lives for their families. And I can see me making that same calculation if I was in their place. But I would make that calculation knowing that if I'm discovered, I'm going to be sent back where I came from, that that's the risk I'm taking. I, I need to have that as part of the downside part of my calculation. And yes, the risks probably are still worth it. You know, maybe you can go there, maybe you can find your niche and you never get caught and everything works out okay. But you always know that there's that downside. I don't think that I have the right to go to another country because I want to. I think that that country has the right to vet me, to not allow me to live there if I don't want to. And is that my ideal world, how I would ideally set up my world? No, because I talked about freedom of movement being very important and being something that I value quite a bit, but that's not the world that we live in. Uh, so I wanted to touch on that a little bit. I don't talk about immigration enough probably on this show, and it's a, it's a position that I think a lot of libertarians ignore, and probably my position there would be controversial to some, but that's how I approach it, and I don't want more of people's money being taken. I don't want people's economic freedom being further infringed upon by immigration. I think that takes precedence right now over immigration. So enough of that diatribe about immigration and that issue. Back to the wall and what its fallout is looking like right now. So President Nieto of Mexico was supposed to meet with President Trump on Thursday. He ended up canceling that meeting because of the new news that came out. Basically, Spicer, what I talked about before, Spicer having said that the U.S. would make Mexico pay for the wall by imposing a 20% tax on imports to the United States and further talking about the wall as if it was a reality or as if it's going to be a reality. So Nieto fired back, posted a video uh basically saying Mexico will never pay for a border wall and that he does not want to meet with President Trump and the Foreign Affairs Ministry is going to work to make things better for Mexican immigrants in the United States. And apparently there are 50 consulates at which they can do this. They can set up programs to help Mexican immigrants uh, through this tough time which is how they're, you know, how they're reacting to the executive order. So things are not looking good between Mexico and the United States right now. NAFTA is also under fire, which would hurt Mexico the most, probably of the three. I think it would hurt all three countries. It would hurt Canada, Mexico, and the United States. But I think it would hurt Mexico the most. I think Mexico benefits most from the freer trade. And that's very similar to what I've talked about on the show, how free trade tends to benefit the poorest among our citizenry the most. Uh, 
very similarly, I think it benefits the poorer country more than the richer country. And that's what's happening in this case. Mexico is the poorest of those three countries. So it makes sense that they would benefit most from NAFTA. But uh, that's what's going on right now. Things, things are not looking great diplomatically between the United States and Mexico. Another diplomatic... You know, another diplomatic issue to keep your eye on is the issue with China. So basically, Rex Tillerson had said a couple weeks ago, so before Trump took office, he said, quote, we're going to have to send China a clear signal that first, the island building stops, and second, your access to these islands is not going to be allowed. So he had made that clear. Basically, what China's been doing, they've been building up islands in the South China Sea, and then claiming this is their territory they've been doing it mostly for military reasons putting um, you know putting military constructions on these islands and making them more habitable for for military type equipment and they say it's to protect their shipping lanes protect their interests and they claim this as their territory and others dispute it saying that they are in international waters so it's been a contentious issue for a long time and the U.S. hasn't really pushed too hard on on that issue, which is good to me. I think this is a foreign policy misstep by the Trump administration. And I've liked a lot of what they've done with Russia. Basically, Russia, you take care of what's going on in your backyard. We don't really want to be that involved. Uh, Why should we be in Syria? All of those types of things I completely agree with, but we're not carrying the same logic to China. You know, why do I care about who's who's controlling what in the South China Sea? That is not something that the United States should be involved with. If it really starts to damage our shipping interests, if it really starts to damage the U.S.'s ability to, to get to certain places in the world, then maybe we could start talking. But that's not what's happening right now, and we should not be getting involved in what's happening in the South China Sea. It's asking for, for something to happen. It's asking for somebody to fire a shot accidentally and start a war with China. The absolute last thing that the United States needs is war with anybody right now, you know, let alone a country like China that would be very formidable. Uh, so what Sean Spicer did, and I'm bringing up Sean Spicer again, and he was asked about the South China Sea, and he said, the U.S. is going to make sure we protect our interests there. It's a question of if those islands are in fact in international waters and not part of China proper, then yeah, we're going to make sure that we defend international territories from being taken over by one country. So he's reiterating what Tillerson said. And once again, why does it matter to the United States, to the broke United States, what's happening in international waters? Who controls what in Asia? unless that entity is going to make it impossible for the U.S. to travel through that area. If things really did reach that point, maybe we could talk about that being an act of war. But nothing is anywhere close to that at this point. Let China handle what's going on in its area and do not let the U.S. get involved. And you already have tens of thousands of troops, I believe. I don't know the exact number of troops in South Korea still. Still meddling in in that area, still meddling in that region's concerns. We still have lots of troops in Japan as well, so there is a substantial U.S. military influence in that part of the world. And us having our people over there 
We are just asking for trouble. We are asking for something to erupt and for us to be drawn into something that we are not ready to fight. And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about those sorts of things far more than relations with Mexico. Not that I do not want good relations with Mexico, but I think this is a far bigger deal than what's going on with the wall. I think having good relations with China is necessary, you know, not just for economic reasons, not just because I think both countries do benefit from having a close relationship with the other. I think the U.S. benefits more from its relationship with China than the other way around. But I do think that both both do need the other to a certain extent. But having our people over there and trying to dictate to them what to do in their own backyard is just a bomb waiting to go off. And China is not going to take us trying to dictate to them lightly whatsoever. So they've had multiple officials come out and speak out against this type of policy. Liu Kang, who's a senior official with the Chinese Foreign Ministry, came out right after Tillerson made his comments. And he said, quote, that's not international territory, that's Chinese territory. He said further, China has every right to build whatever it wants on the islands. He also said, quote, this issue touches upon China's core interests. By no means is this something that can be negotiated or used as a bargaining chip. Uh, so Trump also had uh, communicated with Taiwan and referenced the president of Taiwan, uh, basically giving Taiwan respect, and that's considered a slap in the face to China. I talked about that when it happened, and back on that original episode, I said that China needs thicker skin, basically, that basically Trump being willing to take a call from a foreign leader who was calling him to congratulate him, that should not be anything like an act of war. So that's what I said after that. But I think this is very different. Taking a call is very different from trying to dictate to a country how we think they should do things. And I always try to imagine how we would react if another country was trying to tell the U.S. what to do in the Gulf of Mexico or something like that or what to do off the coast of its off the coast of its own shores we would be outraged you know people would be marching in the streets people would be calling for war against that country and that's pretty much how china's reacting i think not quite as extreme as we would be reacting in the us because it's just so foreign to us that anybody would ever tell us what to do but try to put yourself in china's shoes and you'll see i think they're pretty justified here you know, they're the, they're the big dog in their neck of the woods. So let them be the big dog over there. Why does the U.S. have to come in, put two big dogs in the same room, and have them fight it out? It, it doesn't make any sense. The South China Sea is not as important as people want to make it out to be as a strategic, you know, vital outpost or anything for the U.S. I don't think China's plans are to close off travel through the South China Sea or to control it entirely. And maybe if it does get to that point, maybe we can have a different conversation. But let them do what they want to do in this case. Uh, so a couple other things I wanted to talk about in this show. One thing that I did not talk about in my last show, I should have, and I'd, I'd meant to talk about it, but student loan default rates. So I've talked a lot about the student loan crisis in this country and the, and the higher education bubble. And... 
one thing I didn't talk about when I talked about that in the in the last episode was that student loan default rates have been significantly understated. So basically what happened was the Department of Education came out uh, with a with a memo saying that it, it had overstated student loan repayment rates at most colleges and trade schools and then provided updated numbers later. I'm going to run through those numbers in a minute. Uh, the world, uh, The Wall Street Journal reported that, quote, many more students have defaulted on or failed to pay back their college loans than the U.S. government previously believed. So apparently the department previously had inflated the repayment rates for 99.8% of all colleges and trade schools in the country. So the numbers were correct for 0.2% of all colleges and trade schools in the country. And according to the revised data, at about at, at over a thousand colleges and trade schools in the country, or about a quarter of the total, at least half of the students had de- either defaulted or had failed to pay down a single dollar of their debt within seven years of graduation, which is just incredible. You know, a quarter of schools in this country, half or more of the students from that school are not paying down a dollar of their debt or have gone into default within seven years of graduation within and of course they blamed it on a glitch a glitch that resulted in this faulty data and maybe that's the case maybe it was a glitch but if you look at the incentives facing the department of education the incentives are to understate default rates without a doubt so this fits very well with what you would expect from the incentives facing the Department of Education. And this is just more evidence that higher education is a bubble right now and people are taking out too much money to fund this education. I'm not going to go into a long diatribe about why that is. You can listen to my prior episodes if you want further news, but this is something I'm promising to keep you updated on as new news comes out because I think it's a very important issue and especially anybody below the age of of 30 listening to this show. It's something that's either affecting you currently or affecting friends of yours or younger brothers and sisters or will affect your kids if you have kids. So this is something that people need to be informed about, need to understand all the damage that this student loan program, this federal student loan program has done and how this is really destroying people's lives. Think about it, those schools that over half of them still have this huge cloud hanging over their heads seven years after graduation and have not made even a tiny dent in it, have not paid off even a single dollar or have entered default, which is even worse. Uh, so that's an important issue, something I'm going to keep covering on this show. I've gotten mostly positive feedback about covering higher education so much, so I'm going to continue to do it as long as there's news to talk about. Another thing I wanted to make sure I talked about in this episode before I forget about this topic, uh, the Standing Rock protests and the Dakota Access Pipeline and also Keystone XL. President Trump signed an executive order basically calling for restrictions to be removed from both of these projects. So you've got to assume probably that the Dakota Access Pipeline will happen, will go under the Missouri River and the, you know, the Standing Rock tribe they temporarily prevailed, they won the battle, but I don't think they're going to win the war. So that's an important piece of news, something that we all kind of expected and something that I had said that I would expect to happen if and when Trump becomes president to happen, that Obama was doing it to kind of save face among the progressives and for it to not be his fault 
for it to be passed on to the next administration. Uh, but that's not really the important news that I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about something that came out. It was probably almost two weeks ago. But a group of landowners in Morton County, North Dakota, is planning to sue the company responsible for developing the Dakota Access Pipeline. And they're claiming that they were deceived during negotiations for pipeline easements. So there was no eminent domain used in the state of North Dakota. I focused on the state of North Dakota when I talked about this on this show because I both live in North Dakota and the protests were in North Dakota. So this is the epicenter of the whole conflict. So the other states almost were irrelevant. But one of the things I talked about was that eminent domain was not used to take private land in the state of North Dakota and give it to uh, to Dakota Access LLC to build this pipeline. So eminent domain basically would be taking land from one private landowner, giving it to another private landowner in this sense. Eminent domain also can be used to take private land and use it for government use. But I talked about if, if that was the issue at hand, that eminent domain was being used and that private land was being taken to be used for another private project. I am 100% against that, and I would be standing out there fighting with the Standing Rock tribe. But that's not what happened in that in that situation. And they're not going through Native American land to build, uh, to build this pipeline. But these landowners are suing, saying that they were threatened, essentially, with eminent domain. Basically, if they did not, if they did not sign the easements, if they did not agree to the easements, and take the money that was being offered that Dakota Access would then go and use eminent domain. That eminent domain would be used to take this land. So basically, take the money or we're going to take it and you're going to get less or nothing. That's essentially what they're saying happened. And I think that is deplorable. I, I talked about how I think that eminent domain being used in, the, in that way, taking private land from one person, giving it to another, because people in their in their infinite wisdom these governments in their infinite infinite wisdom know what the better use is for that land i think if somebody wants that land badly enough they're going to pay whatever you need to to get that other person to give it up i don't think that it's in government's purveyance whatsoever to be favoring one party over another so eminent domain used in that way is very dangerous but threatening its use i think is just as deplorable so you're basically, you're, you're using the government's power to use eminent domain to get somebody to voluntarily agree. But it's not really voluntary. It's only voluntary in the legal sense of the word because somebody signed it and took the money that you were offering for the project. But they basically did it under duress because they were made to believe that there was the very real possibility that their land would just be taken or that it, it would be taken and they would be given less money than they would be through the uh, through these easements so i stand with this group of landowners i'm going to be following this story pretty closely because this is almost exactly what i talked about i don't stand with standing rock because that is not the issue that they're trying to frame they don't care about private property rights they're not talking about private property rights whatsoever they're talking about that they have the right to stop a project from happening because there's the possibility that their water could be affected and then bringing in claims of, of racism and, and all of that into the mix. And I, I don't think they have a case. And most of the people that I really respect agree with that position. 
most of the people of North Dakota are on my side on this issue. They don't agree with the Standing Rock protesters, and they would just like to see the project happen. And they 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 just don't agree that there's there's much of a case here. And the courts obviously think the same thing because they've lost every step of the way. So I just wanted to make sure I got that in before the end of the show here. One other thing I did want to mention before I get off the air is the Dow has now hit 20,000. And it hit hit 20,000 yesterday on the 25th. It opened above 20,000, I believe. Uh, and this has been part of the, the Trump rally, or what, whatever you want to call it, uh, Trump mania. Since his election, the, the markets have really run wild. And it's very interesting because that's the opposite of what most people were expecting. If he was to be elected, everybody was saying, well, it's going to be calamity in the markets. So that, that's a big point against voting for Donald Trump. But the markets have, have done quite well since he got elected. And I don't think that really means much. I don't think the markets are telling us much right now other than showing us the effects of central bank manipulation and central banks buying like crazy in stock markets all around the world. And bond markets, too, are very distorted for, for the same reason. Uh, but, I mean, bond markets have been distorted by central bank policies, I think, for a lot longer than stock markets have been. And the effect has been much greater on the bond markets. Uh, but this stock market rally and hitting 20,000, I don't think that it's evidence that the economy is, is fundamentally strong. I don't think things have fundamentally changed since Donald Trump has taken office. And I don't want people taking a ton of stock in hitting these nominal types of goals. It's cool to see. It's cool to follow. It's been nice to look at my retirement accounts the last couple months and just see gains and gains and gains, uh, but they're paper gains. And I think we are getting set up for a correction. And basically all the sentiment I've seen from professionals looking at what does Dow 20,000 mean, they're all fairly scared. Now there are the optimists out there. There are some perma bulls just as there are some perma bearers out there. But I think there's not much there's not much room on the upside in the immediate future and there's a lot of room on the downside. So especially if you are somebody older that's getting closer to retirement, this is not the time to pile into the stock market. This is not the time to to buy high because you'll eventually end up selling low. For somebody like me, for you know, for somebody in their early to mid twenties, uh, I just kind of put it on autopilot, and I try not to let anything that happens in the markets influence my decision making right now because it tends to be over time. Dollar cost averaging does work, and especially if you don't want to put a ton of time into studying, you know, if you don't want to put. <laughs> If you don't want to put hours every week into what's going on in your portfolio, that's probably a pretty good way to do things. But it's a big milestone, and I think it is enticing for people who, especially people who have sat out a lot of this run, to want to get in now because they think, I, I can't psychologically miss out on further gains if this keeps going. I can't keep sitting on the sidelines. But if you are one of those people, I would probably keep waiting it out. It does depend on your age as well. But being heavily invested into this market, if you are somebody that's going to need to pull your money out anytime in the near future, is not a good place to be right now. Uh, so that's a big piece of news. I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention it during my show. So I think 
that's going to be where I hold off for now. I had some other stories written down to maybe talk about, but uh, I don't want to push this one to an hour again. I think between that 30 to 45 minute range is about perfect for me. So please go out and subscribe to us, iTunes, Stitcher, any podcast aggregator out there that you use. Please let me know any feedback on the show, any topics you want me to cover. Leave a comment on the website or get in contact with me on Twitter. Really, any way you want to. I, I love hearing from people and discussing things back and forth. And uh, and hopefully people have heard at least some sort of unique thoughts coming from me. Because that's really what I'm trying to do here, trying to trying to talk about things I'm not, not necessarily able to talk about in my everyday life. So I appreciate it. Have a fantastic night and a great weekend.